You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. Go ahead and take your seats there. And um, as you're doing that, we want to dismiss our middle school class. They meet down the stairs here on Sunday mornings. So if there's any middle schoolers, feel free to wake, make your way over to class. Those of you staying here with us, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 11. If you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up in the air. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible. And for those of you who like to read the Bible on your phones, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app. If you sign in there and you go to events, you'll find our notes. And we have... Some of the stuff that's here up on the screen, but we also have some more stuff that's uh, in those, those notes for the phone that you can follow along with and interact with. It's just a great way for you to connect with the scripture as we're going through it. So on Sunday mornings, we are currently studying through the book of Exodus. Our series is called Be Set Free. And today, as we've been traveling through the book of Exodus, we come to chapter 11 and we come to what is really the central event, the central event historically for the Jewish faith, which is the Passover. But as we study the Passover today, what we're going to see is that the Passover itself actually points to something beyond the Passover itself. The Passover is a picture. The Passover is actually a foreshadowing of another event, which itself is even more pivotal, which itself is even more crucial and important for the world at large and for us individually. So would you please read with me? We'll begin by reading our text, uh, some verses from chapter 11 and then some verses from chapter 12. So chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. But when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, And with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that, Lord, you are a God who speaks to us. And we come to your word today with a desire to hear from you. We come with a desire today to hear the gospel message and to be emboldened in our hearts as we see your love for us and what you have done for us in Jesus. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might see glorious things in your word. Lord, that we might hear them, we might understand them, and they might not only affect our minds, but they might also affect our hearts and affect every area of our lives. So we ask that as we take in this seed of your word, Lord, that you would water it and that it would bear much good fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years back, I was visiting my brother-in-law, and he lives in San Diego, and we were, uh, we were hanging out at the beach. My brother-in-law was surfing, and I was trying to surf, which uh, means that I was keeping lifeguards busy trying to figure out whether or not I needed to be rescued. But my brother-in-law, as he was surfing, he got stung by a jellyfish. So he was in a lot of pain, but I was kind of excited. And you might, you might be picking up what I'm putting down here about why I was excited. See, I had heard that there is this easy remedy for how you're supposed to take care of jellyfish stings, and I was excited and very willing to try this out on my brother-in-law. See, what I had heard uh, is that urine counteracts a jellyfish sting. So that's all you got to do. Apply some urine to the jellyfish sting, and it stops hurting. So I offered to help my brother-in-law out in this way. And much to my disappointment, uh, he, he ad- adamantly refused to let me do that to him, even though I offered several times in a row. See, now, turns out, though, that was probably a good call on my brother-in-law's part for several reasons. Uh, turns out that I did a little research. Contrary to popular belief, urinating on jellyfish stings doesn't actually make them better. It actually makes them worse. And here's why. Because the, the chemicals react and it causes these stingers, which the jellyfish leaves in your body, to release even more venom. So if we would have done that, it would have hurt him even more. Just so you know. FYI, just write that one down, log it away. But, you know, there are a ton of kind of folk remedies, right? Like miracle cures, like just do this and it'll fix this, right? That people have claimed over the years. Here's a few examples. Early American settlers believed, again, urine, it's not all going to be about urine today, I promise, but early American settlers believed that urine could cause, or could cure acne. So they would harvest their urine and apply it to their faces. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have acne, okay? That's just what I'm thinking. Okay, in the 1800s in England, even until the 20th century, it was widely thought that a cure for curing a sore throat was to wrap dirty socks around your neck. Turns out there's not a lot of science behind that, right? Um, Another cure was to wrap bacon, raw bacon, around your throat before you went to bed, which sounds like a terrible thing to do to your bed sheets. Uh, A medical journal in Ireland said that the cure for the common cold was really easy. All you have to do is apply salted herring to the bottom of your feet. Problem solved, right? For children with earaches, even in the United States, it was common for a long time to pack their ears with uh, chewing tobacco. Turns out that doesn't actually do anything. Just, uh, but that's what people thought. Uh, Here's my personal favorite. If you had a lot of ingrown hairs, like you're like, man, I just have ingrown hairs all the time. Here's, here's one cure that people gave. So you make a warm compress, you apply it to the ingrown hair, 
And then, you know, once it's released and, you know, all that, you take that compress and you put it in a coffin with a dead body and that will cause your ingrown hair problem to transfer to the dead person. Problem solved. There you go. So in our text today, you're wondering, what does this have to do with anything? It does. Check this out. In our text today, we are looking at the Passover. Now, the Passover is something that a lot of us have heard of, really. It is the central event in Jewish history. It's the most repeated thing that the, that the Old Testament talks about. In all the Psalms, they recount the Passover, the Exodus. So I think there's a the degree to which when you hear something, something becomes common, you start, to take it, you start to take it for granted. Like, okay, that's what happened, and that seems like perfectly reasonable. But I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of a person at that time and consider just how bizarre and just how random and arbitrary these instructions would have sounded if you were to hear them for the first time. It would have sounded a lot like the stuff I just told you, a lot like one of these miracle cures for, for different things. But think about it. This is the message. Something terrible is about to happen. A plague is going to come, which is going to kill every firstborn son in every household in the land of Egypt. And here's what you've got to do in order, to, in order for death to pass over your house. Really easy. Just take a year-old lamb, have him live with you for four days, then kill it and collect the blood in a bowl and paint the blood on your doorframe of your house using a hyssop branch and then eat the lamb together with your family. Easy peasy, right? So these instructions, though, really, think about this. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Like, why all those details? And how does any of this have anything to do with saving a person's life? I mean, think about this. What if I today told you, today you need to go home and you need to paint some animal blood on the outside of your house? You would not just be like, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds perfectly reasonable. I want you to understand that for these people at this time, this does not just seem like a perfectly normal thing to do. But yet as strange as it was, it wasn't totally out of left field. You see, in order to understand this, in order to understand the Passover, you have to see it in the context of the story of the Lamb, which is a major plot line of the Bible. You see, there are several plot lines that run through the Bible. This is one of them, the story of the Lamb. It runs through the entirety of the Bible from the beginning all the way to the very end. And there's a very real sense in which you could say the Bible is a story of a lamb. And this particular passage really only makes sense when you see it in light. The Passover itself only makes sense when you understand it in light of this story of the lamb that runs throughout the Bible. So we'll be looking at that today. The title of today's message is Passover, Behold the Lamb of God. And here's what we're going to see. First of all, we're going to see that there is a great and or terrible day great and or terrible day. Next, we see the story of the lamb, which we'll be spending most of our time, and finally, beholding the lamb. So a great and or terrible day, the story of the lamb and beholding the lamb. Let's begin by talking about this great and or terrible day. Okay, the setting of the Passover is something we've been talking about for the past several weeks. God has demanded that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, release the Hebrew people from the crushing slavery and the grinding poverty that he has been subjecting them to and that he let them go that they could serve him and him alone and pharaoh of course said no and as a result of that the lord god sent a series of plagues upon egypt now the purpose of the plagues as we've seen over the past few weeks was not to destroy the egyptian people rather it was in in fact to save the egyptian people it was to wake them up 
the plagues revealed God's glory. They revealed that he alone is Lord and God so that the Egyptians might turn away from the false gods that they had been trusting in and they might put their faith in the Lord God instead. And what we saw last week is that as these plagues get progressively worse, more and more of the Egyptians, they did exactly that. They did turn away from their false gods and they did turn and put their trust in the Lord God. To the point where today, as we look at the exodus actually happening, what we're going to see is that many of the Egyptians joined the people of Israel and worshipped the Lord, and they left Egypt and followed God. So in spite, though, of these increasingly severe plagues, Pharaoh has refused to budge. And so now, here in Exodus chapter 11, God sends a warning. He says, there's going to be one more plague, one final plague, and this will be the most devastating plague of all. In this plague, here's what's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed that God is Lord over life and death. So far in the other plagues, we've seen that God is Lord over nature, that God is Lord over all. In this one specifically, here's the message. God is Lord over life and death. He alone gives life. He alone sustains life. And he alone has the right to take life away. And this plague that's going to come is going to cause Pharaoh not only to let the people of Israel go, But after this, he's actually going to drive them out. He's going to demand that they leave right away. So in Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, if you're following along, here's what we see. Moses goes in and he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. He says, the destroyer is going to be released. God is going to send the destroyer and he is going to bring death upon the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And then interestingly, we see that Moses doesn't even wait for Pharaoh's response. It says that he tells him what's going to happen and he just leaves without even waiting for a response. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 11, the final two verses, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Moses, just heads up, FYI, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you once again. He's not going to let the people go because God, he says, I have hardened his heart in order to show my glory, in order to bring about my plan of salvation through what is about to happen next. In chapter 12, verse 1, there's an interesting thing. God tells the people of Israel something. He says, I'm going to push the reset button on your calendar starting today. He says, today for you is day one. It's a new beginning. It's a new start. This is going to be your new New Year's Day. This is going to be the new day of your calendar. It's all going to be rearranged because today is the first day of the rest of your lives. Everything is about to change. Bondage and captivity will be things of your past and you are going to step out into freedom and start a new life. And here's what I want you to see. This day is coming in only a short time for these people, which is going to be a great and or terrible day. It will be a great day for those who are being delivered and set free. And it will be a terrible day for those who will experience judgment and lose their sons. And yet, the reason I say it's a great and or terrible day is because there's a sense in which people had a choice. There was a choice to be made. Will this be for you a great day or will this be for you a terrible day? You you have some say in that matter because, see, word has spread at this point about what is going to happen, what's going to come upon the land of Egypt. And as we'll see, the means of salvation is available to all the people, not just to the Israelites. If you were an Egyptian and you heard about this 
thing, this way to be saved from the destroyer, you could participate in it. If you were, on the other hand, an Israelite and you said, you know what, it's kind of weird, seems a little bit radical, I mean, animal blood on the outside of my house, no thanks, kind of squeamish, I don't like that kind of thing. Um, if you weren't willing to take that step of faith and believe and act upon what God had said to do, if you didn't do that, the day would not be a great day for you. Even if you were an Israelite, for you it would be a terrible day. So with this plague, there's a choice to be made. This can either be a great day, the start of a new beginning, a new life of freedom, or this can be a terrible day, a day of loss, a day of mourning. And the choice is really yours. Now, you might wonder, who in their right mind would choose to have this day be a terrible day? Who in their right mind would stand by and not do everything they possibly could, even if it felt like they were going out on a limb to save their son? Interestingly, we'll see that many people did. And there's a parallel for us as well in this. And that's this, that the day of the Lord is coming for each and every one of us. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the statistics on death, but they're pretty staggering, right? 10 out of 10 people die. That's 100%. Uh, life is short and we must recognize that for each of us, the day is coming. It's unavoidable when we will stand before God, the righteous judge of all the earth. And for you, that will either be a great day or it will be a terrible day. But there's a choice in the matter for you. You can embrace the provision that God has given for you to be saved, in which case the day of the Lord will be a great day for you. The, or, or you can dismiss the provision which God has given for you, which is what we're going to talk about next, in which case the day of the Lord will be a terrible day. At the end of Moses' life, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's very old at that point, but he gives one final impassioned plea. And two times he says to the people, he says this phrase, he says, Behold, today I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And he says, And I, I plead with you, I implore you, choose life. See, a new beginning. This was the offer. This was the promise of the Passover. And it's a promise for us as well as we're going to see now as we look at the story of the lamb the story of the lamb god is saying essentially to the people with this story of passover for one night in one place in a, in a limited location and for a limited time i'm going to release the most unstoppable force on, in the world on, on planet earth the destroyer that's what he's called in verse 23 it says that the destroyer will be released as a form of judgment and, and as a sign that i am lord over life and death it will be a limited but yet devastating kind of judgment day. And he said, this judgment that I'm going to release is going to cut right through the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. It's going to cut right through it like a hot knife through butter. And there's only one way that you can be protected from this. There's only one way that you can be saved from this. There's only one thing that can save you, a lamb. This guy, I've got a picture. That guy right there, fluffy fluffy little guy. This is the only thing that can save you from the destroyer, from the most unstoppable, powerful force in all of the world. Death. This is the only thing that can save you. And you say, really? The, the meekest, mildest, weakest creature that exists is going to save me from the most powerful, unstoppable force in the universe? Yes. And here's how. I want you to kill the lamb, eat it with your family, and spread the blood on your doorposts. 
Now, the only way this makes sense is if you put it in the context of the Bible-long story of the Lamb, a story which has several chapters. And I'd like to just walk you through a few of those chapters, if you would. So for those of you who have fast fingers, you can follow me. For the rest of you, I'll just read the verses to you. But let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. The very first chapter in the story of the Lamb begins in Genesis chapter 4. We read in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his, uh, firstborn of his flock. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the very first two kids of the very first two people who, who ever lived on earth. And now you might be familiar with the names Cain and Abel. You might know that Cain later goes on to murder his brother Abel in cold blood. But here's what preceded that. Cain and Abel each bring an offering to the Lord as an act of worship. Cain brings some vegetables and Abel brings some meat. So clearly... That tells us what God prefers, vegetables or meat. He doesn't like vegetables. It says that he brought the firstborn of his flock. Abel did the same thing. He sacrificed to the Lord, which means that he slaughtered this lamb and he brought it as an offering to God. And it says there that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for, not for Cain and his offering. And this, this is what provoked Cain to jealousy. But the question is this. Before we even look at why this happened, now think about this. Where did they even get the idea that this was a good thing to do? Like this is something you should do, that you should bring an offering to God. And why would God be pleased with the offering of a lamb more than any other offering? Now to understand this, we have to actually go back one chapter to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, you might remember, there you've got Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, it's ideal, there's a relationship between God and man, there's no sin, there's no shame. It says that they're naked and unashamed and they walk with God in the evenings. So there they are in Genesis chapter 3, but yet Adam and Eve, rather than trusting God, rather than obeying God, Adam and Eve decide to sin against God by doing the exact thing which God had told them not to do. And as a result, Adam and Eve are filled with an overwhelming sense of of shame. They, they know that they have ruined their relationship with God. And so what do they do? They try to hide from God, which is not a very smart thing to do. You can't hide from God. But they try to, and they try to cover themselves. They try to make coverings for themselves and their own shame. And what do they do? They take fig leaves and try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now there's a reason why fig leaf clothing has never really caught on and become mainstream. Uh, there are several reasons. I think the main one is it's pretty drafty, right? Like when you're wearing fig leaves. But here's what happened. Even though Adam and Eve were hiding from God, God was pursuing them because that's the kind of God he is. He is a God who pursues us even when we're not pursuing him. And we thank him for that, right? And so he comes to them and he tells them this message. He says, I see your attempts to cover yourself and I see that it's not working out for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to provide a covering for you so that you can stand before me once again. I am going to cover your shame because of your sin so that you can stand before me once again. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read this. The Lord God made coverings for Adam and Eve of the skins of animals 
Now, how do you get skins of animals? There's really only one way. You have to kill those animals. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Right at the beginning of the story, the very first people in the world sinned. And because of their sin, they could no longer stand before God. And so they lived, so they tried to cover themselves, but they failed. It was inadequate. Their best attempts were completely insufficient. But God, because of his great love for them, he didn't give up on them. He pursued them. Even though they had sinned against him, he intervened on their behalf. And he made a covering for them so that they could stand before him once again. Great, right? Awesome. Yes, but there was a cost. There was a cost involved in that covering. Innocent blood of an innocent creature had to be shed in order that they could be covered. Because of their sin, an innocent creature was slain so they could be covered and stand before God. And now here are their kids. You got Cain and Abel. Despite the fact that their parents were the ones who sinned against God first, they are born now into this world where sin is present, where death is a reality, and they've just inherited that. And why are they bringing an offering to God? It's to thank him for his grace. And why would Abel kill a lamb as a sacrifice and as an offering? Why would God look upon that sacrifice as pleasing? Here's why. Because Abel's sacrifice is reminiscent of the covering that God made for his parents so they could stand before him once again after they had sinned. Now fast forward with me again. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 22 where we see Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. He's been waiting 20 years to have a son. He waits 20 years, and finally he has this son, and he loves his son. His son's name is Isaac. God had promised him that through Isaac, he would build them into a great nation. He's only got one son. It's not like there's a plan B. He's got one son. Through that son, there's supposed to be a great nation, and through that nation is supposed to come the Savior, the Redeemer of the world for all people salvation to all nations but in genesis chapter 22 verse 1 we read this after these things god tested abraham and he said take your son your only son whom you love and go to the land of moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which i will show you notice the wording there it's quite curious it's like twisting the knife a little bit why why would you twist the knife like that right Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Why all the detail? Now you can be sure that Abraham felt terribly confused at this moment, felt terribly conflicted. His head is spinning with all kinds of thoughts. Why would God make all these promises to me? Why would God make me wait for 20 years and give me a child only to take that child away from me? Isn't this weird that God would tell me to kill my son? Isn't, isn't that like human sacrifice, which is kind of wrong? But even though he's confused, even though he doesn't understand what God is doing, Abraham chooses to obey God and what God's telling him. He chooses to simply trust that God has a plan, even if it hasn't yet been fully revealed. And so Abraham heads out on this journey. Three days they walked until they came to this mountain in this place called Moriah. Isaac, who, by the way, at this point is not a boy, he's a young man. At this point he says, Dad, we forgot to bring something to sacrifice. And Abraham says, don't worry, son, God will provide us a lamb. He says God will provide himself a lamb. So they keep walking. Hours go by, days go by. They finally get to this place, and still no lamb. They collect some rocks. They build an altar. Still no lamb. This is becoming quite the problem. And so Abraham finally has to concede this point. I guess this is just what I'm going to have to do. So he breaks the news to Isaac. You can imagine tears in his eyes, brokenhearted. He says, son, God told me to sacrifice you. 
So I need you to go get on that altar and we're just going to do this. I don't understand why. I don't know what God's plan is with this, but I'm just doing what he told me to do. So Isaac, rather than, you know, karate chopping his dad and running away, he lays down on the pile of rocks and on the wood. And Abraham, you can imagine, just completely destroyed at this point, brokenhearted. He raises the knife with tears coming out of his eyes. And at that very last moment, the very last possible moment, God speaks and says, Abraham, stop. Look, there's a young ram caught in the thicket. I want you to sacrifice that lamb in place of your son. So as Abraham slaughters this ram, Isaac gets off the altar and the lamb takes Isaac's place and is offered as a sacrifice to God, as a substitute. Now fast forward with me again. We come to the text that we're looking at today. Exodus chapter 12. For one night, God released the destroyer and God provided a way for people to be saved, for death to pass over their house. In chapter 12, verse 3, every household is to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without blemish. And on the fourth day of having that lamb in your household, you would slaughter the lamb, you would collect its blood, and you would spread that blood on the doorpost. And where, wherever the blood of the lamb was covering the doorpost of the home, the destroyer would pass over. See, the destroyer was not a respecter of persons. It didn't matter that night if you were a Jewish or if you were Egyptian. It didn't matter if you were religious or if you were secular. It didn't matter if you were a moral person or a licentious person. The only thing that mattered was if the blood of the lamb had been applied to the doorposts of your house or not. If you were covered by the blood, you were spared from the judgment. It was an act of faith to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of your home. Seems like such an arbitrary thing, doesn't it? Such a messy thing. But if someone would have said, hey, I'm fine, I'm a Hebrew, I'll be cool, I'm just going to eat lamb chops, I'm not going to do the blood thing because it's kind of gross, that night judgment would come upon that house as well. That night the destroyer came. And every home in Egypt, in every home in Egypt, think about this, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Every firstborn son that survived that night, they would look at the lamb on the table and they would say, the only reason I'm alive is because that lamb is not. Now fast forward with me again. Isaiah the prophet comes on the scene and he prophesies a message of hope that even though Israel has been unfaithful to God, God will still be faithful to Israel. He, he's a God who keeps his promises and he will be faithful to keep every one of his promises, including his promise to send the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the one who will be the ultimate liberator of the people, who will set them free from bondage to sin and death forever. And Isaiah told them something about this man, the Messiah, which would have been very surprising, which would have been very unexpected for these people. It wasn't how they envisioned it. Isaiah reveals that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to die. He's going to suffer and this will be the way that he will bring victory. This is how he will bring liberation. It will be actually through his death. It will be by suffering for them on their behalf. Isaiah, in chapter 53, he says this, the Messiah, he will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows and he will be smitten by God. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace will be upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Now check this out. He says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He will be afflicted, but he will not open his mouth. Like a lamb 
that is led to the slaughter, he will be silent. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and his soul will make an offering for our guilt. His soul will be poured out to death, and he will be numbered with the transgressors, yet he will bear the sin of many, and he will make intercession for them. The substitute, the covering, who takes our place in death so that we can be saved. Isaiah tells us this about the Messiah. He will be a man who takes the role of the lamb. Now fast forward with me again. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He, he goes down to this place where John the Baptist is baptizing people and calling them to repentance to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And so they go down to the Jordan River where there's a crowd of people and John the Baptist is, is speaking to them and baptizing them. And as John the Baptist is in the water, he looks up, he sees Jesus coming towards him and he says to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Fast forward again, three years later, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He comes on Palm Sunday and enters the city. You know what day of the month that was? The tenth day of the month, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Does that ring any bells for you? Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. On the tenth day of the month, take the lamb into your household. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. He's received as the Messiah. They have a parade for him. They welcome him in. They receive him. But four days later, now the 14th day of the month, remember what happens on the 14th day of the month, according to Exodus 12, verse 6, that was the day when the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered. And where do we find Jesus that night? We find him in a rented room with his disciples, and they're sharing the Passover meal. Jesus says to his disciples, go rent that room, make arrangements so that we can eat the Passover together. Now one of the traditions during Passover meal from time past and even to this day is that someone takes the role of the officiant or they call them the father, even if they're not the actual father of the family. And the father takes that role and he presides over the meal. And the job of the person presiding is that they are to explain the significance of the different elements of the meal. And so if you look at the Last Supper, you see that's exactly what Jesus was doing, which is why we read this. Jesus takes the bread. And what his disciples expected him to say was what was always said for hundreds, thousands of years at Passover time. They take the bread and they say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered so that we could be free. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He takes the bread and he says something different. He says, this is the bread of my affliction, which I am doing on your behalf. He says, I am going to suffer in order to give you freedom. This bread is my body. He says, I'm going to be suffering. This is the bread of my affliction on your behalf. Freedom that's not just political, freedom from sin and death itself. This would have been completely surprising. They would have not expected this to happen, that Jesus would say this when he's supposed to say something else. And if you take also in a, a second look at all of the accounts of the, Lord's, uh, of the Last Supper, take a look at each of them, you'll notice this. There's something that's missing from the Passover meal that night. Look around the table. There's the bread, there's the wine, and there's the lamb, right? Which is the most important part of the Passover meal. Now wait a second. Where's the lamb? There is no lamb at the table. That's the most important element of the entire thing. The most important element is missing. Now, who was the host of this meal? It was Jesus, of course. And as the host of this meal, he has purposefully removed the main element of the meal, which is the lamb. Why? 
Well, just as he said that this bread is the bread of his affliction for us, his body broken for us, he is declaring at this Passover meal, I am the Passover lamb. I am the lamb. I am the lamb who was sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame. Abel's lamb, the lamb who took the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah. I am the man Isaiah spoke of, who is like a lamb slain to atone for the sins of the people. That's me, all of it. It's always been about me. It's always been pointing to me. He says, my death is the central event, which everything has been building up to since the beginning of time. Only a few hours after that dinner, Jesus was arrested. He was taken before the Jewish religious authorities. He was accused of blasphemy. He was taken before Roman officials. He was accused of sedition. But yet, just as Isaiah said, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he remained silent. He did not exonerate himself. He did not try to get out of it in any way, even though he could have. The Passover bread was unleavened bread. Leaven throughout the Bible is a symbol of sin. Jesus' body without leaven, it's a picture of that. It also says there in in Exodus chapter 12 that not a bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. Interestingly, contrary to common practice, during crucifixion they would usually break a person's shin bones to make them die faster. But when they went to do that to Jesus, you might remember the story, they didn't break his bones because they found him to be already dead. The bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. Jesus' bones were not broken. It says that they were to use what kind of branch to paint the, the, the doorposts? Hyssop. You remember it says literally that Jesus, they extended a hyssop branch to him when he was hanging on the cross with a, with a um, sponge full of sour wine. Now maybe you think, Nick, all these parallels between Jesus and the Passover lamb. It's interesting and stuff, but don't you think you're, you're kind of stretching? Like, you're kind of reaching here a little bit, aren't you, Nick? Well, listen, this isn't my idea. I didn't come up with this. It's in the Bible. Paul the Apostle says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He says, Christ, our Passover. It's not me who's making these parallels. They were inherent to the nature of the Passover lamb, nature to who Jesus was. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah? Do you know where Mount Moriah is? It's a hill outside of Jerusalem. In fact, it's the very hill where Jesus was later sacrificed. There's one more chapter, the final chapter of the story of the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, we see the Lamb, Jesus, seated on the throne for all of eternity. And that brings us to our final and closing statement, and that's this. Beholding the Lamb. At the end of chapter 12, Here's what happens, Exodus chapter 12. Everything happens exactly as God said it would. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron. He demands that the people of Israel leave Egypt immediately. And so there we see the Exodus in chapter 30, or sorry, in verse 37 of chapter 12. It says that some 600,000 men, not counting women and children, left from Egypt that night. That's somewhere probably around 2 million people. But they weren't all just Hebrews. Verse 38 tells us that there was a great mixed multitude who departed from Egypt that night with them. These would be the Egyptians who had come to believe and trust in the Lord through the plagues upon Egypt. 
After the Exodus, though, here's what happens. God takes the time to institute the Passover as a perpetual memorial for the people of Israel. They're meant to repeat this meal regularly to remind themselves of how God saved them and set them free by the blood of a lamb who was slain in their place. And as part of this remembrance, what were they to do? They were to remove all the leaven from their households. Remember, leaven is a symbol of sin. And so it speaks of how they were to live now as a redeemed people. And in the same way, Jesus... On the night that he was betrayed, he established a new Passover meal in remembrance of him. The bread, his body broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. The cup, his blood shed for us, which covers us, which makes us clean. It's important, in other words, that we continually behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To behold the Lamb of God doesn't mean just to look at him. It means to gaze upon him. It means to fix your eyes upon him. It means to look intently upon him. It means to consider, to ponder, to reflect on who he is and what he's done and to let it sink so deep down into your heart that it affects every area of your life. Maybe you, you're here today, you, you're listening to this, you've never really put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you're not sure. You, you're just kind of, I think maybe I have, but I'm not sure. Maybe you've, on the other hand, maybe you've been a Christian for several years. The message for you is the same. Behold the Lamb of God. Fix your eyes upon Him. Consider what He, Jesus, has done for you. I'll say this one last thought. I think that with the election coming up on Tuesday, it's all the more important that we behold the Lamb of God, that we fix our eyes upon Him, that we remember that He is sovereign, that He's in control, that He loves us, and that He has called us to be a redeemed people set apart. Fix your eyes upon him. He is your covering. The innocent blood that was shed so that you can stand before God unashamed. He is your substitute on the cross. God gave his son, his only son, whom he loved. The son of God became the lamb of God and he took your place in death that you might take his place in life. He is your salvation. If you would have met an Israelite in the wilderness after the Passover and after the exodus out of Egypt, and you would have asked, what are you guys, who are you guys and what are you doing out here? You know what they would have said? They would have said, I was an alien in a foreign land. I was under the penalty of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and I was saved. Even though I couldn't save myself, I was saved. I was brought out of slavery. I was set free. And now God is in our midst. And even though we're in the wilderness, God is taking us from here and he's taking us to the promised land. And you know what? That's exactly what you as a Christian can say as well. Everything in history climaxed on that day when Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him and embrace him. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, that though we were aliens, though we were in bondage, Lord, you came and you set us free. Lord, you led us out and thank you, Lord, that you are leading us from here on into eternity. Lord, we thank you for the redemption in our lives. We see this work of redemption throughout the scriptures as we look at each of these passages. Lord, may we be those who behold you, who fix our eyes upon you. Lord, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you, Lord, that we look to you, not to any state government. We, we thank you, Lord, that, that you have called us to be a separated and redeemed people. You've called us to be Christians and followers of Jesus. Now, Lord, would you empower us by your spirit to follow you? 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.